I've always thought about the two thieves. Those two other guys crucified along with Christ on Calvary. I wonder which one I would have been. You really have to put yourself in the scene to appreciate their predicament. Here you are hanging on a cross. You're there because someone caught you, or maybe a buddy of yours, committing the crime of robbery. Or at least someone accused you of a robbery. Which is a tough accusation to escape because someone is saying they saw you do it. And you had your chance to plead your defense earlier that day at the Praetorium where Pontius Pilate was. Pilate heard the charge against you. He gave you a chance to explain yourself, maybe, shall we say, under torture. And you said, hey, I didn't do it. It was some other guy. Or you said, um, look, I really didn't mean to do it, and here's why. Or maybe you said nothing. And then that buddy of yours, who for reasons unique to human nature that have been played out long before then and will be played out long after, turns on you to free himself and says to the judge, I didn't do it, he did. And you look aghast. Or maybe you were the one who turned on your buddy. And just as it was played out long before and would be played out long after, the accusation backfired and both of you were caught. In any case, the judge heard the evidence against you in public. He consulted with his attendants in private. And then he went out to the judgment seat and announced so that anyone in earshot could hear, I find you guilty of the crime of robbery. You shall mount the cross. He probably had you scourged a bit. Not a whole lot. Romans didn't scourge people to the point of death, at least for the most part, when they knew a crucifixion was forthcoming. They wanted you to feel pain. They wanted others to see you feel pain so that they would never think about doing what you had just been convicted of doing. They'd insult you, mock you, bash you around a bit. You're a scumbag. How's it feel to go to die? They'd say with bug eyes at you. You scared? Ha, ah, good. You deserve it. Got any family members around? Better hope not. You don't want them to see you in this way. You don't want to see them see you in this way. You like screaming? Good. You're going to get to scream all you want. They hand you some crossbeam that you'll be hung on. They whip you a few more times and then you try it on for size. Start walking. Wait, wait, what's that? Oh yeah, we got another guy joining us. Whatever. Ite, which means go. And so you walk through the streets where people stop to look at you. They figure you're a criminal. You must have done something wrong or the Romans wouldn't have convicted you. Yeah, you're going the route of despair and pain. But, well, you deserve it. You should have known better. And you get a few whips along the way. Again, more to make people scared of going through the same thing than to take any real time off your life. You head outside the walls and go to a place where they usually crucify people. You probably passed by that place before. There's outside a gate to the north side of the walled city. Again, the Romans wanted to make sure their victims were seen. Maybe you'd stop and look at those poor wretches hanging on the crosses. Maybe you couldn't. Never to happen to me, you'd say, like most criminals who think they'll never get caught. If I did, I'd just slit my wrists or something. Yeah, if you had the chance. But you didn't get the chance. They shove it to the ground and grab your crossbeam. One guard grabs one of your arms really tight. 
Another guard grabs your other arm really tight. You can't kick because another guard is on both your feet. You can't quite see what's going on. All you can do is look up at the sky. You're screaming. You're cursing. Maybe you spit at a guard and he then smashes his fist across your face. You refrain from spitting again for a bit. You feel a metal point in your wrist and you try to turn your head in time as you see a hand go up with a mallet that crashes down on that iron piece. It's excruciating. It's numbing. It's shocking all at the same time. You can't think and then your arm is pulled extra far on the other side to keep you from sagging when you'll be launched upright and that pulls your shoulders out of joint and across rough, splintery, hewn wood, leaving what feels like shards of glass across your back. Another hand goes up with the mallet and comes down again with unbelievable pain through your other wrist. Both hands. Oh my. Oh my. You can't handle it. But you're not done. The guards grab both sides of the crossbeam and start hoisting you up. No, no. You can't take it anymore. You're now hanging from the nails in your wrists. More like drooping in sick fashion. You scream at the top of your lungs. You curse the guards. You can't even spit on them as they're not in your way. There's a moment's hesitation, maybe, when they mount the crossbeam on some forked sticks they can use to elevate you onto the straight bar posted in the ground. Your legs dangle. Your arms come out of their sockets. You try to kick if you can. Against anything, air, whatever. It's instinctive. It hurts. The more you kick, the more your hands hurt. The more you'll tell your wrists off the nails. You would if you could, but you can't. There, crossbeam is mounted. You're now looking over and above what you would see if you were standing. You'd be a good jump down if you could jump down. You're looking down on people who are looking up at you. You can't kick with your legs anymore. Someone's tied them to the post, or they've grabbed them together by your knees. Someone else is now trying to hold your feet still against the post. There's that metal point again, in the middle of your foot, maybe one on top of the other, or just next to it. No, not the mallet. It strikes again. More excruciating pain. More numbness. The guards look at you to see if there's more to be done. They're satisfied. You're done. While you're going through this, you're vaguely aware that two others around you have been going through the same thing. You hear the screams and curses of that former buddy of yours. The other guy, you don't hear much. You wonder what's going on, assuming you wonder, which you probably can't. You're thinking about your mortality and pain. You really have no time to think about anyone else's. But at some point, you can, because you're now upright, and the others are too. You hurt in ways you never thought possible. You can't get comfortable. When your feet become unbearable, you hang from your hands. When your hands and shoulder sockets become unbearable, you rest on your feet. You writhe like a snake on a stick, up and down, gasping bites of air. Your shoulders are out of place. You have splinters. Your hair is in your face. Sweat and blood are dripping. You itch. You can't scratch. You're dying of thirst, but only in a manner of speaking. You've vomited several times already. The residue is sticky, putrid, and itchy, too. But it's not quite like the bowels you've lost. They drip down your legs and your feet. You reek of diarrhea, and you itch from that, too. The guards laughed when you did so. 
Conditions that would be mortifying in public are not embarrassing now. Your only thought is of pain and fear of even more pain. You see feral dogs at the periphery. They're looking for the chance to get a bite out of your leg. You see birds of prey circling. Sometimes they perch on the crossbeam and see just how alive you really are. They have little to fear if they're wrong and you're not dead yet. Maybe they'll get an eyeball to start on. At the core of your being, though, is utter despair. Utter despair. You're going to die. You have no idea what happens after that. Will you suffer more torment? Will you be judged in the afterlife like you're judged here? Will you dissolve into nothingness? Why'd you even live? Is this is what life all about, to get pleasure while you can, as long as you can, and die quickly in your sleep? Well, you miss that chance now. You're going to die slowly, and you're going to go crazy while you do so. And you look at that other guy now crucified between you and your buddy. Maybe you heard something about him. Maybe only that morning while your trial was going on. Maybe before. You see that quite a crowd has followed him out here. They're looking at you while they're looking at him. You see chief priests and temple leaders. They're there insulting him. They ignore you. They keep a good distance so they can avoid ritual defilement and partake of the feast. Yes, there's a big feast tonight. You won't be going to it. Some are standing by wailing. Women, it appears. They're not wailing for you, though. There's a woman, a younger guy. They're standing near him. They look earnest. They have sorrow beyond measure. But they're faithful, and they love him dearly. You have no one who loves you. No one will miss you. No one will remember you. Your buddy keeps screaming and cursing. He curses at the guy in the middle, too. You're in utter agony. You scream and writhe, and you curse, too. And maybe you also curse the guy in the middle, because you'd curse anything whatsoever that happens to be in existence, because that thing or person exists, and soon you won't. But at some point, something very strange occurs. You stop screaming. You tell your friend to shut up. And you tell him to shut up about the middle guy. And then you turn to that guy in the middle, if you can turn to him. He's about eye level with you. He's got some sign above his head. It says his name, Jesus of Nazareth. It says he's king of the Jews. You got a sign over your head too. It says you're a bandit. The guards are screwing around down below, playing dice, drinking cheap wine. You look at the guy in the middle and you say these words. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Why would you say that? What on earth would cause you to say those words? I have no idea. Why wouldn't you act like your buddy on the other side? That's what I want to explore in this episode. I want to talk about two things in general. First, I want to talk about that guy on the right, or is it on the left, of Jesus. Who was he? What do we know about him? If anything, from history, given what we do know about his crime, he was a robber or a bandit. And second, I want to talk to you about the guy's words, what they meant, what Jesus said in reply, what church fathers and scripture scholars have said about these words too. 
I think we're supposed to pay attention to this side story of Jesus' crucifixion. Nothing is recorded in Scripture without purpose. I'm sure plenty of things happen at Calvary that would be worthy of all kinds of interest down through the ages, but never got recorded. Well, this incident got recorded, and it's supposed to tell us something special. I want to try and get at what that special message is. Let's turn first, as we always should, to the text of Scripture. Luke is going to be our main source, and for the first time we get any inkling that there were any other crucified along with Jesus comes from a brief remark in chapter 23. Right after that passage about the women of Jerusalem who meet Jesus on the way to Calvary, right after Jesus addresses them as daughters of Jerusalem and tells them not to weep for him but for their children, and if they do these things when the wood is green, what will they do when it's dry? The passage continues, quote, But others were being led off, two wrongdoers, with him to be put to death. End quote. We have no idea who these two others were, where they came from, how old they were, and even what their names were. Although legends will supply us with details about them, that we'll talk about later. We don't know when their trials were, although we can assume they were earlier that morning, probably concurrent with Jesus' trial in between its starts and stops. We don't know if they were Jews. We don't know if they had any family or followers like Jesus had following along with him. All this passage says is that they were, quote, wrongdoers, and they were being, quote, led off with him to be put to death. I want you to keep your eye on that term wrongdoers for a minute, because that's not the only term that's used to describe these fellows. But the next time we hear anything about these fellows is at Calvary itself, and they're already on their crosses. All four Gospels mention their presence there, and it's from the Gospels of Matthew and Mark that we get this other descriptive name for them. In Greek, of course, they're called lestes, L-E-S-T-E-S, lestes. It's the plural form of the word lestai, and the word has a fairly clear meaning from antiquity. It means robbers. The two guys being crucified along with Jesus were not just wrongdoers, they were robbers. Let's take a minute to talk about this term, lestes, because it gives us some insight into who these two fellows were, and we really have precious little else to go on. The word lestes was to the ancients what the term robbers or bandits is to us. There's always a notion of violence that comes with it. It's distinct from the term kleptes, which they use to describe a stealthy person who, without violence, deprives another person of property. That word is the root for our own word, kleptomaniac, which refers to someone who is an addiction to stealing. But one who is a kleptes is very different from one who is a lestai. A lestai usually travels in bands, which is why the plural form of that term, lestes, is often translated as bandits. Bandits are brigands, marauders, gang members who attack caravans or settlements with weapons and who rob people of their goods. These people are very different than people who go around stealing in secret. They're terrifying. They're invasive. They would take oaths together. They had their own hideouts, their dens. This was their full-time job. They might swoop down from their mountain roosts, swarm into villages, raiding crops, plundering valuables, killing those who got in the way. They were highwaymen. They'd lie in wait for travelers or caravans and then jump out from nowhere and raid the travelers of their precious goods. 
The Jewish historian Josephus uses the term lestes 78 times, and each of these times he gives the same impression. They were an exceedingly nettlesome kind of criminal, and governments throughout the Mediterranean would wrangle with them with various degrees of success. If any military unit happened to catch any, they were authorized to summarily execute them. No trial was necessary. Herod the Great managed to catch a leader of a large horde, and of course, he had him killed with relish. Sometimes, robbers would demand ransoms or extort money from towns. They could exact bribes from public officials. Their overall description resembles the same kind of menace that pirates were throughout the Caribbean from the 15th through 1800s, replete with their own leaders, their own customs, and their own fearsome reputations. They were in it for the money. They were such a force as a class that a shepherd or carrier who lost sheep or goods from theft alone would be himself liable for the loss. But if he lost a sheep or goods from a bandit, then he would not be liable for any loss as a matter of established law. They usually lived and roamed in the countryside where they could enjoy their anonymity. But they could also thrive in cities, such as in Jerusalem, where one prominent group of robbers were known as the Sicarii, a name that came from the small daggers they carried, Sicarii, which they enjoyed using under cover of large crowds. They were notorious for mixing in large crowds and then stab someone quickly and then start yelling to create havoc and confusion. Someone's just stabbed someone, quick, find him! The Sicarii even managed to kill the high priest Jonathan that way in the year 54 AD. This technique has had fabulous utility throughout the ages at least until surveillance cameras came on the scene. The New Testament contains 14 references to lestes, and all of them more or less reflect these same aspects, although with one possible difference. Father Raymond Brown, who if you haven't heard me talk about him in the other lectures, I'll mention him now, because he has probably the most exhaustive analysis of the Passion narratives ever undertaken and put together in a two-volume set called The Death of the Messiah. He makes the fair point that the term lestes acquired a new dimension over the course of the first century. During Jesus' time, the term was limited to the description we just went over, violent banditry. But as Judeans became increasingly rebellious against the Roman Empire over the next some 40 years, the term took on a political dimension and was used to describe a kind of revolutionary. These revolutionaries were not quite the savage marauders thought of earlier, they were Robin Hoods, who tended to prey on governmental agents or their holdings, and who often enjoyed support from the local villages they came from. The Romans hated them, as did Josephus, who wrote to please the Romans. But they enjoyed a measure of popular support among the people. This distinction may be important for that word I told you to hang on to earlier from the Gospel of Luke. You see, Luke takes care to call the two crucified with Jesus wrongdoers which is translated quite literally that way from the Greek word kerigo. And he does not call them lestes, like Matthew and Mark do. Now, Father Brown suggests that Luke did not want any of his readers thinking in around 80 or 90 AD, when he was thought to be writing his gospel, that the two wrongdoers should in any way be regarded as political revolutionaries, which readers would have thought in reading the word lestes at that time after the fall of Rome in 70 AD, when the Romans had had up to here with those damn social agitators. In other words, 
Luke may have wanted to be clear that the two crucified with Christ were your average garden-variety criminals and not a couple of Bolsheviks. But Matthew and Mark are thought to be writing their Gospels before that notion was in vogue. To them, the two guys were less days, and we can assume they meant that in the traditional sense, garden-variety robbers or thugs. And then there's John and his Gospel. Does he use any descriptive term for them? No, he doesn't. He just refers to them as those, quote, others, which is interesting in itself, too, and corroborates the notion of Matthew and Mark. Because John is the one who calls Barabbas a lestai, and John may very well have wanted that term to convey the notion of political insurrection, because he did not use that term for the co-crucified. And even more interestingly, if you really want to follow how scriptural theorists go, Mark and Luke give an added description to Barabbas, which implies his revolutionary status. They say he's in prison because of a riot and because of some murders associated with it. Riots usually have political connotations, and that's why there's been fair speculation that Barabbas was a kind of Che Guevara, but not the co-crucified. The better reading is that they were, as I've said, just your average robbers or thugs, which says a lot, but doesn't say the more. And so we're clear this term, less days, is the same term Jesus himself uses in the Garden of Gethsemane when he challenges the mob that's come against him. He says in Matthew, Have you come out against a lestai with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. You see his point? If you're going to seize a lestai, you'd be bringing swords and clubs, and they certainly never came at him that way before. Very shortly, though, he'd be accompanied by two of them. There's another important use of the term, and it comes from the story we're all familiar with, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember, the Good Samaritan stops and cares for the man who, as the story begins, quote, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by, yes, you guessed it, Lestes. Roberts or bandits, or highwaymen would be another way to think of them again. Notice the violence. They beat him savagely, forcing the Samaritan to arrange for hospitalization and treatment that was expected to last several days. These weren't thieves acting secretly, like pickpockets in Times Square. These were thugs who beat the crap out of this poor guy and ran off with his stuff. The story obviously resonated with people then, as it resonates with people today. Rotten bastards. If you find them, kill them. How dare they? Mark records Jesus teaching in the temple and castigating those who've turned the house of prayer into, quote, a den of thieves. That phrase sounds really nice to the ear, but it's really a mistranslation. It's supposed to be a, quote, den of robbers. It's a den of lestes, is actually how Mark puts it, which makes sense from what we've talked about above. Thieves don't have dens. Robbers do. Thieves are those who break into the house in the middle of the night, which is what Jesus said the master of the house would have prevented from happening if he had been on guard. If it were a less days about to break in, well, in that case, the master of the house would want to be packing heat. It's because we like the sound of the term thieves to robbers 
that I've had to title this podcast Two Thieves. I really don't like doing that. It's just not accurate. But everyone knows, or most everyone knows, who you're talking about when you say the two thieves in relation to Jesus. If you say two robbers, people won't get it. But that's what I want you to get from now on when you think of these guys. They were not just a couple of thieves. They were a couple of thugs, robbers, bandits, not good guys at all. So we know these two fellows were less days. And we know then why they were being crucified. They'd been convicted of a capital crime, probably even for having robbed pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the great feast of Passover. How dare they? Rotten bastards robbing families on their way to celebrate one of God's greatest feasts. Crucify them! Crucify them! But their trial and conviction that day tells us something that we spent a lot of time talking about in our other lectures. The Mishnah. And whether the Jewish rules and regulations mentioned there were in effect at the time of Jesus' trial, as you may recall, careful scholars have noted that the Mishnah came into existence in about the year 175 AD, and largely through the care of the Pharisees, who were not in charge of making rules before the temple fell in 70 AD. The Sadducees were in charge instead. And so we simply can't say that all the trial rules and restrictions that appear there were in effect during Jesus' time in around 30 AD. All of which is a long buildup to make one more point in the same regard. The Mishnah prohibited having more than one capital trial per day. Here it appears they had three, which means that either Jewish authorities were willing to break yet another rule, which seems unlikely, which was never called out, or, as Father Brown says, the rule simply didn't exist then which corroborates the notion, once again, that all those other trial rules that people like to think applied at Jesus' time, like quorum rules, trials prohibited at night, and so forth, just didn't exist during Jesus' time. We thus move to the scene at Calvary, and we can squeeze a couple of other details out of the bare scriptural accounts. As you've probably seen from artistic renditions throughout history, we always see three crosses at Calvary, with Jesus crucified in the middle. Is that historically accurate? You bet. All four Gospels say so. Mark says, quote, And with him they crucify two bandits, one on his right and the other on his left. Matthew says the same thing in almost identical words. Luke, remember, doesn't call them less days. He calls them wrongdoers, and he puts it this way. And when they came to the place named Skull, there they crucified him and the wrongdoers, the one on the right the other on the left. John, who is writing to Christians, who are unfamiliar with Jewish names and customs, adds a bit more detail. He says, in describing Jesus' arrival on the scene, he came out to what is called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and with two others, here and there, but Jesus in the middle. Funny how he puts it, isn't it? Here and there? <laughs> as if we're supposed to know. You can see him pointing, can't you? There's so many mysteries in John. It doesn't surprise me that this is another one. But I think we're clear on this detail now, aren't we? Jesus was in the middle between the two others. I hesitate to offer one other point because it almost is too ridiculous to mention. But since you see the point being made out there, and it is ridiculous, we probably should mention it. Okay. Okay. 
So we see from each of the four gospel accounts that there are three people being crucified there. Oh, not so fast, say some gimlet eye readers. There are five. What, say you? Oh, yeah, five, say they. You see, you've got Matthew and Mark who refer to the two less days, and then you've got Luke referring to two wrongdoers, which means you've got two additional guys being crucified with Jesus, two less days and two wrongdoers. And they say John was crucified in the midst of them, which implies a plurality. So there, they say, five were crucified on Calvary. Good grief. Sometimes it's hard to reason against insanity. But if you must, please just stick to the story presented and ask why none of the four gospel writers did the math on this. You see what happens when you think you can read scripture cleverly? You end up saying really stupid things. Where then was our guy at Calvary? The guy who gets to trip to paradise? Scriptures don't say. And where the gospels are silent, speculation takes over. The most popular account says he was on Jesus' right, which would be our left if we're facing the three of them. The reason for this is purely symbolic. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about how at the end of time, the Son of Man will come in all his glory and will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The sheep on the right, of course, go to eternal life. The goats on the left go to eternal punishment. We all want to be sheep, right? Goats are creepy anyhow. So, people, let's line up on the right side of the Son of Man. And that's why the repentant robber is put on Jesus' right. Like I said, this is purely imaginary. The Gospels just don't say. Another thing we don't know but might speculate about, did the robbers have any signs above their heads like Jesus had above his? Well, it's not a stretch to imagine they might well have had them. Remember, Romans crucified criminals for a very public purpose. They wanted the public to know what kind of crimes would lead to these kinds of despicable deaths. One way they did that was through signage, including placards they sometimes made the condemned wear while carrying their crosses through the streets to their deaths. It keeps people from asking why this poor SOB was being crucified. You would know. And you'd want to know here. These guys were less days. Of course, we have no other text here about this, but it certainly would seem to be in keeping with the fun and trouble they went to with Jesus and calling him King of the Jews as intended mockery to the Jews to put up something over the heads of these fellows too. Could have simply said, robber. Maybe in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, just so people would really know. And to match the sign on the guy's head in the middle, that was in three languages too. Can we squeeze any more details out of these guys before we turn to their words? I can't, nor can your average historian or theologian. But others have. Yes, I can't pass up the opportunity to talk about the pious legends that have popped up regarding our two robbers. As I've mentioned, there's no end to the imaginative stories that pop up when Scripture leaves off details. We humans love stories. We always have, long before Hollywood saturated us with them. So might as well tell you about one story that's fed a lot of imagery here. It comes from a work that scholars think may have been created as early as the 6th century. So we're talking about some 500 years after the death of Christ. And it was recreated in what is now present-day Syria. It's referred to as the Arabic Infancy Gospel. And it's based on two other literary works that preceded it. The Infancy Gospel of Thomas 
and the Proto-Evangelium of James, which appear to be created in around 145 AD. This Arabic infancy gospel picks up and expands on these two works. There are only two surviving manuscripts, one dating from 1299 AD and the other from the 15th or 16th century in Arabic. They were copied in the area of northern Iraq and they show influence from the Quran. They include lots of charming details and about miracles that the baby Jesus and Mary performed throughout his infancy and the Holy Family's escape into Egypt when they were fleeing Herod, who was out to murder him. The work became very popular in Europe in the Middle Ages. One of the details in that story concerns the two fellows crucified with Jesus. Robbers they were, and one was good and the other was bad. And therefore, the child Jesus saw fit to prophesy that they would both be crucified with him and that one would be saved and the other would not. The story is not very long, so I might as well read it to you in full. It's one story segment in a whole bunch of story segments, and it goes like this. And turning away from this place, they came to a desert. And hearing that it was infested by robbers, Joseph and the Lady Mary resolved to cross this region by night. But as they go along, behold, they see two robbers lying in the way, and along with them a great number of robbers, who were their associates, sleeping. Now those two robbers, into hands they fell, were Titus and Demachus. Titus therefore said to Demachus, I beseech you to let these persons go freely, and so that our comrades may not see them. And as Demachus refused, Titus said to him again, Take these forty drachmas from me and hold them as a pledge. At the same time, he held out to him the belt which he had about his waist to keep him from opening his mouth or speaking. And the Lady Mary, seeing that the robber had done them a kindness, said to him, The Lord God will sustain you by his right hand and will grant you remission of your sins. And the Lord Jesus answered and said to his mother, Thirty years from now, O my mother, the Jews will crucify me at Jerusalem, and these two robbers will be raised upon the cross along with me, Titus on my right hand and Dumachus on my left. And after that day, Titus shall go before me into paradise. And she said, God keep this from you, my son. And they went thence towards a city of idols, which, as they came near it, was changed into sandhills. So, there you have it. Titus and Demachus, two robbers who accost the Holy Family, one of whom, Titus, bribes his fellow Demachus to keep from waking their fellow bandits so the Holy Family may escape notice, and for which the child Jesus tells Titus he will go before him into paradise 30 years later when they'll all be crucified together. And then, as the story goes, some city of idols to which they were headed was changed into sandhills. Oh, and they meet Judas Iscariot along the way, too. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow liked the story, and he worked it into a work of his own, known as The Golden Legend, which he published in 1851. I think if I were telling that story to a bunch of Boy Scouts around a campfire, as I often like to do, I'd work in details about the gold, frankincense, and myrrh Joseph had in his saddlebags, and that Demachus wanted something a little more than 40 drachmas and a money belt. But just then, a Roman teenager by the name of Pontius Pilate happened upon them, along with his father and two Roman escorts, and sensing an impended robbery, gave loud pursuit, chased off Titus and Demachus, and caught the rest of their group asleep, where they leapt upon them and cut off all their heads. But I digress. 
Those of you who know something about our general subject here are probably wondering why I haven't referred to the two crucified robbers by their accepted names, Dismas and Gestus. All right, I will, but with this caveat. The names come from another work that popped up in the middle of the 4th century. So again, about 300 years after Jesus' death, and it became known as the Gospel of Nicodemus, or the Acts of Pilate. The work parallels the Gospels in some respects, but it throws in a few details that the real Gospels lack. One of those details is the names of the two fellows crucified along with Jesus. The work says, plainly and simply, that Dismas was on Jesus' right and Gestus was on his left. And Dismas was the one who chastised Gestus and beseeched Jesus for entering into his kingdom. I don't terribly like to draw from non-canonical works to get details, but these two guys did have names, and so there's nothing wrong, I guess, in using these names for them so we can keep them apart. Or we can call them Titus and Democus. I really don't care. But you should also know the names weren't made up out of nothing. The name Dismas was drawn from the Greek word dismay, meaning sunset or even death. And the name Gestus is drawn from the Greek word gesta, which means to complain or to moan. So we have sunset and moan being crucified with Jesus. Fitting, of course. But they're given different names in different traditions. The Coptics in Egypt call Dismas Demus, while the Russians call him Rakh, R-O-K-H, which means peace. We'll stick with Dismas and Gestus for now. Dismas is the one on the right, Gestus is the one on the left. One a sheep, the other a goat, as it were. One last thing before we get to the exchange of words. Where do these words fit in with the seven last words of Christ on the cross? Well, most scholars would agree they come in second. They were the second words Jesus spoke from the cross. His first words being, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Words also recorded by Luke. In third comes John's account. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Fourth, we have Matthew and Mark recording Jesus echo Psalm 22 when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we get two more from John. I thirst, and it is finished. And then Luke records what were probably Jesus' last words. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. What's really cool about each of these seven words is they each express distinct notions about life and God. You have first, forgiveness, second, salvation, third, relationship, fourth, abandonment, fifth, desire, sixth, triumph, seventh, reunion. So with that, let's talk about the notion of salvation in Jesus' second words. Luke gives us these second words right after describing a scene in which Jesus is mocked for being helpless to save himself. He says, quote, The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. That's then the setting for what happens next. You have people watching, rulers sneering, and then rulers and soldiers jeering, go ahead, 
save yourself. One of the robbers now chimes in. Luke says, quote, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Now, the passage is intriguing on many levels. First, the insult comes from a criminal, and third, in line behind rulers and soldiers. You see how alone Jesus is? He's vilified not only by the Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers, he's also vilified by other wretches crucified along with him. Perhaps we're supposed to recall Psalm 22, verse 7. I am one reviled by human beings and considered as nothing by people. Father Brown notes that the Jewish rulers in the first mockery sneered disbelievingly. If this is the Messiah, the Roman soldiers in the second mockery mock Jesus. Save yourself! But this evildoer repeats both in his blasphemy. Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us! St. Bede in the 8th century loves the irony here. He says, Here you have the Jewish leaders blaspheming and mocking the name of Christ, which was delivered to them by the authority of Scripture, whereas the soldiers, who are ignorant of Scripture, insult not Christ as the chosen of God, but as the king of the Jews. Second, the robber obviously has heard something about Jesus, whether right there at Calvary or during his earlier trial that morning, or maybe before when, say, he was sitting on some grassy plain where people were passing out an endless supply of loaves and fishes, and he was checking out who he might mug on the way back. Who knows? But it is curious about the way he calls out to Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? And then you feel that kind of desperation in his query. Like, well, if you are, then come on, save yourself, and us too. He doesn't seem sarcastic. He seems earnest. Maybe he did see one of Jesus' magic tricks once. Loaves and fishes, water into wine, a coin in a fish's mouth. Yeah, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? And he thought, please, do one of those tricks, now! What's interesting is that his words alone don't quite suggest what Luke accuses him of. Luke quotes him by introducing his quote as an insult hurled at him. Maybe Luke meant this as conjunctive, the robber quote, hurled insults at him, and he said, aren't you the Messiah? According to scholars, the Greek isn't crystal clear what approach he meant, but you'd have to wonder why a guy would be casting insults at someone who might in fact be the Messiah, unless he were particularly callous, which he may have been. Seems like you'd want to hedge your bets under the circumstances. On the other hand, we're missing context. Luke does say he was blaspheming. I suppose we can imagine his words as an insult if we think of the guy not as some sad, desperate vagabond, but as some callous hell's angel without his Harley. In fact, there's no reason to think that both of these guys were a couple of hell's cats. And don't forget what the crucifixion scene was like here. Don't think of it as like some quiet, lingering death watch. It was nothing of the sort. It was a place filled with screaming and retching and panting and convulsing and F-bombs or the local equivalent. Many people went insane during the process. Easy to see why if you stop and think about it. St. John and Mother Mary and the women at the cross were probably quiet. But stop and think what they were hearing going on around them for three hours straight. 
So the stage is perfectly set. Jesus has been vilified, even by the wretched near him. And thus, he who has been vilified without cause will now show mercy without cause. Father Brown finds particular poignancy in the scene. He notes that the very first words Luke records Jesus saying at the outset of his gospel was when Jesus was speaking to the people in the synagogue at Nazareth and was proclaiming release to captives and liberty to those who were oppressed. Now, Luke has Jesus' last words as fulfilling that promise by offering paradise to a wrongdoer hanging on a cross. What follows, though, is a rebuke, but not from Jesus, but from the other wrongdoer. Luke says, quote, But the other criminal rebuked him. The Greek word Luke uses, epitomon, is exactly that, a rebuke. And Luke uses that word far more than any of the other gospel writers, such as when Jesus is, quote, rebuking Satan in the desert. But the rebuke goes, quote, Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Don't you fear God, he says. The implication is that he certainly does, and he didn't appreciate hearing a blasphemy knowing he's on the point of death. Luke likes this word too, fear, far more than the other gospel writers do. This wrongdoer is afraid of God, and he's bold enough to challenge his crossmate and put the fear of God in him. This wrongdoer is no atheist, consigning himself into some great void of nothingness, like your average philosophy major at State University. He's bothered that he may be meeting his maker, and that he'll be meeting him ahead of schedule, as it were, because he hasn't been living rightly. He just might receive a second sentence, and that one would be to hell. His guilt may have been marked by what he may have said to Jesus when he was first crucified that day. As you may recall, Matthew and Mark both mention that both the less days were reviling Jesus. How do you square that with what Luke's now telling us about one of the wrongdoers? Well, church fathers had no problem with this. Back in the third century, St. Ambrose made the observation that perhaps the other one at first reviled and was then converted. That would certainly explain it. But Ambrose goes a step further. He says, and again, maybe he never did blaspheme Jesus. Yes, he says, the text refers to the two of them in the plural, but watch out for the plurals, he says, as they don't necessarily mean there was more than one. He points to the letter of Hebrews, where the author says, chapter 11, they wandered in goatskins, and they were sawn asunder, when in point of fact, Elijah alone is the one who had gone in goatskins and was sawn asunder. The reference to lestes in the plural, he observes, may be meant as a mystical reference. The lestes re- represent us sinners who are to be crucified by baptism with Christ, as Paul declares in his letter to the Romans, chapter 6, verse 3. He's got a point. So please, don't ever let people tell you that good, solid scriptural exegesis never existed until modern scriptural studies arrived on the scene. Indeed, I'm able to quote these church fathers as I am, thanks to the work of St. Thomas Aquinas, who went through the famous library at Orvieto 
and created an astounding anthology of running commentary on each of the four Gospels by 80-some church fathers. His work, called the Catena Aurea, or Golden Chain, is a remarkable work, even by today's standards, with computers and word processing. But getting back to Dismas here, what's remarkable is not only his confession of guilt, he says, quote, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but his next assertion, but this man has done nothing wrong. Hmm, how do you know that? Why would he say that? Had he heard the buzz? He may well have heard Pilate say words of identical effect earlier that morning, I find no guilt in him. And then he realized Pilate got coward into crucifying Jesus, in spite of knowing Jesus was innocent of any crime. Of course, he may have been sitting on some grassy field, pigging out on loaves and fishes once too. Again, who knows? But what we do know is that he proclaimed Jesus' innocence, just like the centurion just a few feet away from him who proclaim about Jesus a couple of hours later. St. John Chrysostom unpacks this same point. It's a bit long, but it's worth hearing in full. He says this, Here the condemned performs the office of judge, and he begins to decide concerning truth, who before Pilate confessed his crime only after many tortures. Christum presumes that the wrongdoer confessed under torture. So curious assumption here. For the judgment of man from whom secret things are hid is of one kind. The judgment of God who searches the heart is of another. And in the former case, punishment follows after confession. But here, confession is made unto salvation. But he also pronounces Christ innocent, adding, But this man hath nothing wrong, as if to say, Behold, a new injury, that innocence should be condemned with crime. We kill the living. He raised the dead. We've stolen from others. He bids us, gives up what is our own. The blessed thief thus taught those that stood by, uttering the words by which he rebuked the other. But when he saw that the ears of those who stood by were stopped up, he turns to him who knows the hearts, for it follows. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You beheld the crucified, and you acknowledged him to be your Lord. You see the form of a condemned criminal, and you proclaim the dignity of a king. Stained with a thousand crimes, you ask the fountain of righteousness to remember your wickedness, saying, But I discover your hidden kingdom, and you turn away my public sins, and accepted the faith of a secret intention. Wickedness usurped the disciple of truth. Truth did not change the disciple of wickedness. Great quote, huh? Now, it's not altogether clear from St. Dismas's words alone whether this wrongdoer had any change of heart. All we have from his words is a rebuke to the other wrongdoer and an expression of fear for the here and after. That's okay. This wouldn't be the first time Jesus would be meeting someone more than halfway. Just the preceding evening, he healed the severed ear of the slave named Malchus, who was there to arrest Jesus, not worship him. So one wrongdoer, we'll call him Dismas, rebukes the other wrongdoer. Let's call him Gestus, and he shuts him down. Luke likes pairing off people to make a point. He's the one that gives us Mary and Martha, the rich man and Lazarus, 
the Pharisee and the publican, the good son and the bad son. Pairings make for interesting exchanges. He's got these two paired off here for an interesting exchange. What I don't see much addressed from biblical commentators is the non-response from the other wrongdoer, Gestus. Did Gestus fire back a nasty retort that Luke didn't want to record? Did he plunge back into vilification and blasphemies? If so, neither Luke nor any other gospel writer recorded that either. He may have just shut his damn mouth. And then what? Brooded? Despaired? Or maybe, just maybe, he let the rebuke soak in. They're no atheists in foxholes, as they say. And they're not likely mounted on crosses either. Had he ever heard that story going round about the good Samaritan who cared for that poor guy who was left for dead by those horrid robbers? Was that story based on him? Was he paying attention to the words that were just about to come from Jesus' lips? Wouldn't he want paradise too? Or did he despair of deserving it? Just what was going through his mind. God only knows. But we know what was going through the mind of the other wrongdoer, Dismas. Assuming he was on Jesus' right, he had looked to his left, past Jesus, to rebuke Gestus on the other side. Naturally, Jesus would have heard him. So Dismas continued looking left, where he could see his own blood-soaked, nailed left wrist, past the blood-soaked, nailed right wrist of Jesus, just across from him. And then he addressed Jesus in these touching words. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Another trenchant observation from Father Brown. He says, referring to Dismas, His manner of address, Jesus, is stunning in its intimacy. For nowhere else in any gospel does anyone directly address Jesus simply by his name without a specifying or reverential qualifier. Nowhere, right? People address Jesus as Jesus, Son of David, or Master Jesus. But where do you have someone just blurt out his name directly? Jesus, remember me. How simple, how direct, how pure. Fulton Sheen puts it this way, Amidst the clamor of the raving crowd and the dismal universal hiss of sin, in all that delirium of man's revolt against God, no voice was lifted in praise and recognition except the voice of a man condemned. Also, consider his request. He doesn't ask to be delivered from death, to be taken down from the cross and run off to safety. He knows he's going to die. He knows there's some kind of kingdom in the afterlife. But he doesn't even ask to be admitted into it. He only asks that he be remembered in it. I hesitate to be the dissector here and point out some issues, but I must because quite a number of dedicated scholars have. You would never guess how much ink gets spilled on so few words. But it does. And I can't say it's not right that it does. Rather, I think of this as consistent with my view of the world, which is that God made it kind of messy, and he has a lot of fun watching us work through the mess. So what kind of mess am I talking about here? Well, let's start with the in-controversy. 
See, if you dive deep enough into scriptural history, you'll learn that we don't have any of the actual papyruses that the gospel writers actually wrote on. We've got copies, and those copies come to us several centuries down the road from the very first copies. They have various names, like the Codex Vaticanus, or the Codex Sinaiticus, or the Codex Alexandrinus. They sound like a bunch of gladiators, but they're not. They're carefully copied versions of earlier versions. Now, don't let that disturb you any. You can get the full text of the Bible just by assembling the quotes that appear in other ancient writers over the period, and they were looking at original texts. And there are far better and more numerous copies of the original biblical text than there are for all kinds of other texts from antiquity that everyone regards as authentic. But one pesky little problem is that some of these versions have some words and other versions don't. And that's why you'll sometimes see footnotes in whatever Bible version you have that points out some of those differences. And now, here's one of the differences. And some people think it has theological import, although I'm not clear on that. It concerns the passage when St. Dismas says he wishes Jesus to remember him when he comes, quote, into his kingdom. Well, or is it in his kingdom or kingly power? You see, some texts say in and some say into. So what's the difference? Well, if you read the passage as, remember me when you come into your kingdom, then it indicates that Dismas thought Jesus was on his way into his kingdom as if it were some place, and he wanted to be remembered as soon as Jesus got there. And then people would wonder how it was he thought that, since no one else did. But the better view seems to side with the inversion, because that implies the parousia, the key word that defines the coming of God's kingdom. We see that notion in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, right? What does that mean, thy kingdom come? So when Dismas is asking to be remembered when Jesus comes in his kingdom, He's very rightly asking to be remembered when Jesus comes into his kingly rule, which is not exactly like some Disneyland castle implied in the former version. For this reason, considerable debate also exists over the Greek term translated as kingdom, basiliae, which has as its root the notion of something royal or kingly, whether in this case it should be translated as kingdom or kingly power or kingly rule. Of course, there are allusions to Psalms, such as Psalm 106, verse 4, which says, quote, Remember me, Lord, in the course of favoring your people. Visit me with your salvation. So you see, his request is more than just, hey, remember me when you get to your Disneyland castle. It's more like, please remember me when you come to rule the world. And the term may or may not imply some second coming. It may well read to also refer to a place, as some say, like John says, in chapter 14, verse 3, when he records Jesus saying, And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In any case, we should marvel for a minute about the fact that Jesus elected to articulate a response at all. Fulton Sheen points out that Jesus broke a silence when he refused to break it on multiple occasions earlier. You have to love the way Sheen puts things. He says, And on that day when Herod and his whole court could not make him speak, nor all the power of Jerusalem make him step down from the cross, nor the unjust accusations of a courtroom force him to break silence, 
nor a mob crying, he saved others, himself he cannot save, bring from his lips a burning retort. He turns to a quivering life beside him, speaks and saves a thief. This day you shall be with me in paradise. Let's turn then to these hypnotic words, this day you shall be with me in paradise. As I mentioned, it can become easy to become overly analytical and process each of these words as scary as scholars have done and will continue to do. The beauty of the human body can be lost when one is dissecting the organs of a cadaver. So I want to be clear and take care not to be the dissector here in the face of this exquisitely beautiful and simple passage. Much has been written on the meaning of this day and the word paradise, and much should be written on it. A kind of majority-minority view has arisen over the term today or this day, and whether it modifies what Jesus says, as in, quote, truly, I tell you today, this promise, or whether, as the majority of scholars think, it modifies the promise Jesus is making. You will be with me in paradise today. In some arcane circles, it's known as the comma controversy because Greek has no punctuation, and writers are compelled to add punctuation where it seems illogical. Most all Bible translators put the comma before today rather than after it. In other words, you'd say, truly I say to you, comma, today you'll be with me in paradise. But someone will eliminate the comma or put it afterwards. So you'd say, truly I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Now, grammatically, this latter view doesn't make much sense because it amounts to an unnecessary truism. Of course Jesus is telling him this information today. Are we supposed to think he needed to clarify that it was today he was making the promise to him? But the interpretation has come up because some people, Protestant exegetes, so far as I can tell, are very uncomfortable in thinking that Jesus would actually be placing this fellow in heaven that very day when Jesus had other business to attend to, like descending into Sheol and freeing the captives from the bosom of Abraham, smashing the gates of hell, and then escorting the righteous through the pearly gates on Easter Sunday. But that's okay. We don't have to get exercised over the word today. First of all, there's God's time, and he's not bound by 24-hour cycles. When he says today, he can be talking about a thousand years, like the second letter of Peter says. Rabbinical Midrash offers the same point. Plus, when we close our eyes in death, we don't know what's today, tomorrow, or the next day when you open them back up. As far as this guy is concerned, once he takes his last breath, he might well find himself, like we find ourselves coming out of anesthesia and waking up, as it were, on Easter Sunday after Jesus had accomplished these other intervening tasks. It'll be the same day to him as far as he's concerned, and that's all that seems to matter. So yeah, the passage is a bit of a mystery, but so what? Pope Benedict XVI thinks so. He says that we're missing the main point if we think about it too much. In his great work, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, quote, This is a mysterious saying, but it shows us one thing for certain— Jesus knew he'd enter directly into fellowship with the Father, that the promise of paradise was something he could offer today. He knew he was leading mankind back into paradise from which it had fallen. 
in a fellowship with God and man's true salvation. Now, as long as we're paying attention to details, then let's pay attention again to Jesus' words, because he prefaces them with this, quote, Amen, I say to you. That phrase is found six times in Luke, 25 times in Matthew, 13 times in Mark, and 25 times in John. A lot of times. And it's always used this way. Hey, pay attention, because I'm going to tell you something really important. So think about this. Jesus dying on the cross. Two robbers are hanging there next to him. People are coming by to mock him, some to weep over him, as he's on the brink of completing his earthly ministry. And instead of giving some grand speech to the world or proclaiming the coming of his kingdom or telling his enemies they'll perish in everlasting shame, he turns towards a common criminal and says, Hey, pay attention, because I'm going to tell you something really important. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Let's then talk about paradise. This term, paradisos, Greek term, is found in only two other places in the New Testament, apart from its appearance here. One appearance is in the second chapter of the book of Revelations, where John is directed to write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, quote, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the tree of life is associated with being in the paradise of God, which, of course, is hearkening to the tree of life in the book of Genesis, from which our entire sad story first began. The other reference appears in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, where he has this curious account about a man he knows who 14 years earlier, quote, was caught up to third heaven, which he says was being, quote, caught up to paradise and hear inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now, someone who used the term that Paul is implying there to apply in Luke and suggests that all Jesus was promising the poor criminal is that he'd take him up to the third heaven, which is some place less than heaven. John Calvin is someone who adopted this position. His point, and the point others make, is that heaven wasn't open that day yet on Good Friday, and so no one could get there yet. But they could go to lesser heavens and wait, maybe, for Jesus to call them up to the real heaven later. Some even tweak the theory a bit further and say the robber doesn't get to go to heaven because he hasn't expressed repentance yet. But that point surely exceeds everything that Jesus has spoken about previously, such as the return of the prodigal son, whose father came and greeted him after he saw his son, quote, a long way off. I just don't think we're supposed to have a stingy view of salvation, and no church fathers that I see think so either. So I'm sorry, Mr. Calvin and the rest of you, I just don't agree. And I'm persuaded by the seven reasons Father Brown compiles to reject this interpretation. First, In early Judaism, paradise and the Garden of Eden were meant to convey ultimate happiness, not something secondary or tertiary like this third heaven. Second, when Dismas was asking to be remembered, why would he be hoping for a lesser heavenly status? Third, why would Jesus, after he died, go to some lower heaven? Fourth, 
Jesus tells Dismas he will be with him. Why would he say that if he would not in fact be with him? Fifth, the story of Lazarus and the rich man only implies two places separated by a great chasm, not multiple levels you can't cross over. Where are the other places anyhow? Sixth, what in Holy Scripture ever indicates that one can't obtain full salvation in the last minutes of their lives before death? Think of the laborers who got paid the same at the very end of the workday. Then finally, that passage in Revelation is consistent with paradise being the place of final repose. And for those who don't think our Dismas here was fully worthy to enter paradise, try these words on for size from St. Gregory from around the year 600. He says the crucified man manifested all three of the theological virtues that St. Paul recommends. He had faith because he believed that God would reign, even though he saw him dying the same way he was. He had hope because he asked for an entrance into his kingdom. And he had charity because he reproved his fellow thief and was dying for the same crime. As for me, I might add, what else was the poor guy supposed to do? Recite the Nicene Creed and make some act of contrition? I also like this pithy summary from Arnold of Chartres that St. Alphonsus Liguori also liked well enough to quote in his great work, The Passion and Death of Jesus Christ. Of this dismiss, Arnold says, quote, He believed, he repented, he confessed, he preached, he loved, he trusted, he prayed. Nice, huh? So what does the term paradise mean here in Luke? Well, it's a curious word because it comes to the Greek and Hebrew by way of the Persians. The Persian root of the word refers to a walled enclosure or park. Three times it appears in the Old Testament. In Nehemiah, Ecclesiastes, and the Canticle of Canticles. And it's used to refer to a garden as in the Garden of Eden. It's a nice place, a really nice place. For the Persians, it implied a shady, well-watered place in which wild animals were kept for a hunt, enclosed by walls and furnished with towers. Did Jesus use this term because Dismas was Persian and he wanted to make him know that he was going to a place he'd really know and like? I wonder. Makes me think of the Big Rock Candy Mountain and how hobos thought of that like their paradise, where you never have to wash your socks and little streams of alcohol come a-tumbling down the rocks. God gives us what will make us happy. He was giving it to this guy, too. We needn't get too narrow and start thinking that heaven is some kind of endless fishing hole or beer supply, although I know plenty of people who say that would be good enough for them. Paul is quick to tell us that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's a whole lot better. So much better that we can't even imagine it. But if you ever stop to think about the happiest moment in your life, it'll be at least like that and more. And that's what he's promising this hapless criminal. Hapless indeed. Fulton Sheen describes in this way. He knocked once, sought once, asked once, dared everything, and found everything. St. Ambrose, Archbishop of Milan in the 4th century, has a beautiful way of making this point and some of the previous points. He puts it this way. A most remarkable example is here given of seeking after conversion, seeing that pardon is so speedily granted to the thief. The Lord quickly pardons because the thief is quickly converted. And grace is more abundant than prayer, for the Lord ever gives more than he has asked for. The thief asks that he should remember him 
But our Lord answers, Truly I say to you, this day you shall be with me in paradise. To be with Christ is life, and where Christ is, there is his kingdom. I love this comment by this church father, Theophylact, who looks at this episode through the lens of a conquering king in military terms, which, as we forget, is what kings were commonly known for. Quote, And as every king who returns victorious carries in triumph the best of his spoils, so the Lord, having despoiled the devil of a portion of his plunder, carries it with him into paradise. He despoiled the devil of a portion of his plunder. Don't you love that? The king is taking back what the devil stole from him. The king crushed the devil and took plunder back from him. Screw the jewels. He came for the captives. For all we know, he took two with him. Writing in the third century, St. Athanasius was among the first to proclaim the real irony here. A point that's been echoed down through the ages and will continue to echo through the end of time. Oh, blessed thief, you've stolen a kingdom by your confession. Yes, the thief who stole heaven, in a manner of speaking, of course. When you think of the long line of amazing saints and martyrs that come after and because of Jesus' death, and the long line of the righteous who anticipated his death, it's rather breathtaking to think that the first pick among them all was a common criminal. Again, to quote Sheen, When our spirits stand with John on Patmos, we can see this white stoled army in heaven riding after the conquering Christ. When we stand with Luke on Calvary, we see the one who rode first in that procession. So our story here is not so much about the good thief or the good robber, as I'm going to keep on insisting and saying, but about the very good Jesus. My personal patroness is St. Catherine of Siena. There are so many things I love about her, but one of her recurrent sayings is this, Jesus was never held bound to the cross by nails, but by love. Let me say it again. Jesus was never held bound to the cross by nails, but by love. Why is it that we keep forgetting that? Chrysostom puts it this way. Here then we might see the Savior between the thieves, weighing in the scales of justice, faith, and unbelief. The devil cast Adam out of paradise. Christ brought the thief into paradise, before the whole world, before the apostles. By a mere word and by faith alone, he entered into paradise, that no one after his sins might despair of entrance. Mark the rapid change from the cross to heaven, from condemnation to paradise, that you may know that the Lord did it all, not with regard to the thief's good intention, but his own mercy. Mercy, you see, is the operative word. It's also the word that dominated the thoughts and insights of our great 20th century saint, Polish sister, Faustina Kowalska, which arise from her great suffering and mystical encounters with the risen Christ. She wrote in her diary, Divine Mercy in My Soul, entry number 1507, All grace flows from mercy, and the last hour abounds with mercy for us. Let no one doubt concerning the goodness of God. Even if a person's sins were as dark as night, God's mercy is stronger than our misery. One thing alone is necessary, that the sinner set ajar the door of his heart, be it ever so little, 
to let in a ray of God's merciful grace, and then God will do the rest. Why this Dismas or Titus or Demas or Rock or whatever else you want to call him? Why him? Isn't his story the ultimate lesson for us all? We're all him in some manner. None of us deserve salvation. It's a gift freely given, astonishingly so, to the least among us, as we're all least in that sense. That's why I guess I've always been fascinated with this robber here, as I mentioned at the outset. What in the world caused him to turn his head and say those words to Jesus? I have absolutely no idea. But what I do know is that Christ turned his head to him and assured him that because he said those words, his wish would be more than granted, and he'd be with Jesus that day in paradise. There's one final bit of history I want to leave you with here as we reflect on this extraordinary act of mercy on the part of our Lord, an act that's intended to remind us of the mercy available, not just to us too, but to those in the most need of mercy, the most in despair, the most sinful of all. And this history concerns how Jewish law treated the crime of robbery. Jewish law distinguished between theft and robbery, as we've discussed. The thief differs from the robber in the fact that the former steals furtively when unobserved, whereas the robber takes openly and forcefully. The thief or robber is obligated to restore the stolen property itself to the owner. The obligation comes into being from the time the robbery is committed, and it's not fulfilled until the stolen property is returned, so as to let the owner know it's been restored to his possession. This last point is very particular. The robber must return the stolen goods directly into the hands of the victim. Commentators, Jewish commentators, note that this is difficult precisely because of the embarrassment and unpleasantness of the situation. Think about it. If you've stolen or robbed something of someone, can you imagine what it's like to have to go back and face that person again? But Jewish law finds great purpose in so requiring it. They say it brings about contact and proximity between the robber and the victim. And even if this proximity initially takes place unwillingly and without exchange of words, say the commentators, it's possible that as a result of this forced encounter, the two will become closer to the point of making peace between them. And making peace, they say, is part of the duty of restitution. So do we need to connect all the dots here? You have a robber. He's being crucified for his crime. He hasn't expiated for his crime under Jewish law. A Jewish rabbi is hanging on the cross next to him. The rabbi is a unique rabbi because he said, quote, whatever you do to the least of my brothers, you've done to me. In other words, this robber had robbed from this Jewish rabbi. And now he has a chance to meet him face to face and to make peace with him because of his sin. And so it appears he has made that peace with him because the rabbi has invited him to be with him in his kingdom. Oh, and by the way, the sacrificial offering for having committed robbery, it's a ram without blemish that's offered to the Lord through the priest. Do you think the robber here can find an unblemished ram nearby to offer to the Lord? And what do you think he thought when, not all that much later, 
He saw that unblemished, innocent man next to him cry out, It is finished, and Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I don't know. But he must have had a sense of peace, even when that Roman guard came over to him and bashed his shin bones with an iron bar, which kept him from taking in a few more breaths of life that afternoon. He was heading towards paradise. The ultimate message here is a message of hope. Hope for all, unconditionally. Pope Benedict sums this up nicely. In the history of Christian devotion, the good thief has become an image of hope, an image of the consoling certainty that God's mercy can reach us even in our final moments, that even after a misspent life, the plea for his gracious favor is not made in vain. I want to close with these words from the second letter of Peter, chapter 3, verse 13. What we're waiting for is what he promised, the new heavens and new earth, a place where righteousness will be at home. So then, my friends, while you're waiting, do your best to live lives without spot or stain so that we'll find you at peace. Think of our Lord's patience as your opportunity to be saved. Thank you. If you like this podcast, I'd ask if you could do me a huge favor. Actually, if you like this, it'll be for your benefit too. Can you go to iTunes or wherever else online you can find it and post a five-star review of this if you think it's worth a five-star review? And the reason is, is that there's this algorithm that decides what people might be interested in. It'll light up and suggest this to more and more people. And then my hope, as I hope it is yours too, others will be inspired too. Thank you.